we are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hello, darlings. I'm Katie Manning, and I play Joe Grant and Joe Grant Jones in Doctor Who. <laughs> and Iris Wildtime. Hello, lovies. <laughs> and you're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, darlings. Bye-bye. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast of which we undertake the never-ending task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. It is really feeling like that today. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally never-ending three-person discussion panel. Well, I guess if we tried to regenerate ourselves and made ourselves immortal, that would be the case, but it hasn't been, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. This is the podcast that never ends. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Go away, go away. This is the song that doesn't end. I remember that very well. Mm. Yes. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. And I think three is a finite number. It is. It was supposed to be four, as it turns out, because I made a big error. I messaged our good friend Jim Sangster the other day to ask him what the meaning of the phrase bun party was. And after he told me, he said, I am still on the schedule for Modern Undead, right? And I said, <gasps> oh my God. It had completely slipped my mind, so I am apologizing in public to Jim for leaving your name off the schedule. He will be joining us for the other two that he actually requested. <laughs> <laughs> just not this one, because just getting this one to get recorded has been a chore and a half. So very sorry, Jim. However, he did send me extensive notes, which I will share parts of with you when we get there and as we need them. All right. So, yes. 
If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them. You store them in a ship in temporal orbit, doomed to fly forever like the Flying Dutchman, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lemmy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor, Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton, Welling, Louise Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. One breath. Okay. If we get too many more, I'm not going to be able to do it. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's second season as the Doctor, as we discuss the novelization of Modern Undead. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Modern Undead, adapted by Peter Grimwade from his script that aired from 2183 to 2983, published by Target Books in August 1983. As of this recording in June 2023, this title is currently out of print and is available as an unabridged audiobook, 119 pages. Now, we've already discussed Peter Grimwade when we discussed Time Flight, so it's unnecessary to repeat his biography here, except to bring up one part of it that pertains to the story. And it's a fairly important one. Grimwade went to school in a place much like Brendan, which is likely why there's so much bitterness attached to any descriptions of the school. Mm. And that's understandable, really, as it wouldn't have been very easy to be a gay teenager at such a place, especially during the 1950s. I'm sure he wasn't open at that time, but yeah, it can't have been easy. You'll notice that he tries not to paint the brigadier with the same brush he paints the rest of the faculty, so his problem is not with the brigadier, it's with the school. And speaking of which, let's talk about the brigadier. Did you guess that you were going to be seeing him again so soon? No, not at all. No? Total surprise? Good. Yeah. Nicholas Courtney returns for the first of two appearances this season. For the first time since we last saw him in Terror of the Zygons in 1975. If you're wondering what the second appearance this season is, it's going to be the Five Doctors. So he actually technically appears twice this season. Even though the Five Doctors is special, it's still a part of the season. He wasn't the original choice for the guest star for this story, though. Originally, it was going to be Ian Chesterton, which would have made wow. much more sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure we would have heard anything about Barbara in that appearance, but who cares? It would have been William Russell. Unfortunately, William Russell turned out to be unavailable for the recording, which would have been awesome to have one of the first companions come back for the 20th anniversary, even though we do end up getting that in The Five Doctors, just not the companion we would have wanted. So, since he was unavailable, they turned to their second choice, and that was Harry Sullivan. (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately, Ian Martyr wasn't interested in coming back for this story, which is rather surprising given how much he hated his character's send-off in the Android Invasion, because the last time we see Harry, he's lying on the floor. 
As to those hush-hush activities the Brigadier mentions, we'll actually hear more about them when we discuss our last Ian Martyr book, Harry Sullivan's War, which ostensibly takes place after this story. And yes, we will be recording that one, and we're going to handle it after The Five Doctors. Okay. Since we're going to talk about the Brigadier, we need to talk about the unit dating controversy. It never stops. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Unlike what the name suggests, it isn't a scandal about the latest girl that Sergeant Benton took out for dinner. (laughs) I know, that was a terrible joke. As we've discussed before, previous stories with Unit were always considered to be set 20 minutes into the future, or at least not in the year they aired in. This was confirmed on screen in The Pyramids of Mars when Sarah Jane Smith directly states, twice, that she's from 1980, in a story that aired in 1975. So far, so good. Nothing seemed to contradict that ever. Until this story came along and said the Brigadier retired in 1977, and the current year is indeed 1983. And thus, decades upon decades of useless debate began, because what else have the more vocal fans of Doctor Who to do with themselves but argue about minutiae and make podcasts about it? Notice I didn't say listen to podcasts there because y'all listening at home, you're cool. Those of us who make podcasts, (laughs) though, yeah, we're kind of obsessed with this sort of thing. It turns out all of this could have easily been avoided, but the main reason behind it is down to three words. John Nathan Turner. Like so many things. (laughs) Yes. Ian Levine, of all people in his role as unofficial continuity advisor to John Nathan Turner, the man who basically put the wank in fan wank for early 90s and 80s Doctor Who, (laughs) did something right for once, and he pointed out to John Nathan Turner that this was a date discrepancy. John Nathan Turner, however, who was usually all for bending over backwards for the fandom, and sometimes bending over forwards, ignored Levine's advice because he was so taken with the idea of setting the past segment of the story directly on the date of the Queen's Jubilee. So, thanks for that, JNT. God. Yeah. So it's all down to John Nathan Turner. We would not have the unit dating controversy at all were it not for him saying, oh, but I want it to be on the Queen's Jubilee. So, yeah. The nice thing, though, about reading the novelizations in story order is that in the books... This discontinuity doesn't exist at all, because in his novelization of Pyramids of Mars, Terrence Dix, whether through amazing insight or just a desire not to be bothered with all the fiddly bits, rewrote Sarah Jane's lines in that book so that she instead says she's from the future. That's almost a direct quote. So having just wasted about two minutes on this, let's never speak of it again, shall we? (laughs) Until it comes up again. (laughs) Yes, exactly. There are two new faces to talk about instead. One who will be with us for the duration of the Black Guardian Revenge thingy. Uh, That's a technical term. (laughs) Is that the next one we're reading? (laughs) The next story? Black Guardian Revenge thingy. Yes, and one who will be with us for a bit longer. We will talk in detail about Valentine Dial who is the actor who plays the Black Guardian next time, but I want to bring up something that Jim Sangster pointed out in his notes. You'll notice that almost every time Turlow refers to the Black Guardian because he doesn't have a name for him, he calls him the Man in Black. Mm -hmm. Which made me always visualize Johnny Cash. 
who would be completely wrong for the part. Yes, American audiences would do that. British audiences, however, of a certain vintage, shall we say, would remember the Valentine Dial was the narrator for a BBC radio series called Appointment with Fear, and the name of the narrator was The Man in Black. Mm. Yeah, so that's Grim Wade being very clever. In fact, there are quite a few very clever things in this book. And yes, I'm saying that about Grim Wade. Trust me, it's going to keep going. But yeah, that's why that's there. This time, however, we're going to introduce Mark Strickson, who plays Turtle Mark Strickson was born on the same day as me, but 11 years earlier, so he old. He had only three TV appearances before landing the role on Doctor Who, including the show Angels, which had planned to cast him as a regular, but without telling him. Instead, they told John Nathan Turner. When John Nathan Turner approached them to find out if he was available to be a lead in Doctor Who, and this was enough to piss him off and cause him to take the Doctor Who part instead. Wow. He thought they were being presumptuous Mm. because they'd already started reworking their scripts to fit him in, but they hadn't told him. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine if all jobs were like that. Oh, God. I think that's an outstanding insult. Yeah, I would think so. American audiences who had never watched this show before would have had a chance to see him the following year. He played the younger Ebenezer Scrooge in the TV movie version of A Christmas Carol starring George C. Scott. Which is hard to wrap your head around, because it's hard enough to imagine George C. Scott as Ebenezer Scrooge. It's even (laughs) harder to wrap your head around the fact that Mark Strickson plays a younger version of him. Yeah, it's weird. We'll talk more about Mark Strickson after Doctor Who when we get to his last story, because it gets even more fascinating from there, believe it or not. I have all the respect in the world for Mark Strickson. Strixit's casting only hit one major snag beyond the fact of another show wanting to cast him as a regular, and that was his hair. Strixon had the same hair color as Davison, and as John Nathan Turner seemed to think that the viewers were too stupid to tell the two apart, he asked if Strixon would shave his head. Strixon agreed, but only if he could be paid an extra fee to compensate for any parts he'd lose because he was bald. John Nathan Turner disliked the idea of pl- paying. Uh, sorry, <laughs> of paying actors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he disliked the idea of paying his actors any more than he had to, and so it was decided to dye Strixon's hair a very brassy red. Thus, we get only our second red-haired companion after Liz Shaw, and he's not even real ginger. For that matter, I'm not sure Liz Shaw was either. The idea here was to give the Doctor an actual evil companion, which is an idea that John Nathan Turner had somewhat wanted to explore with the original character brief of Adric, before Adric turned from an artful dodger thief to a whiny teenage mathematician. Whether that works or not, we'll just have to see. There's also a whole story about how Turlo was supposed to be introduced in a different story called The Space Whale, but there was a falling out between the writers and Eric Sayward, which is why Turlo starts his life here as a schoolboy on Earth under mysterious circumstances. There are a couple of other people you need to know about. The story also brings back Angus Mackay, who had played the first incarnation of Barusa way back in The Deadly Assassin. And Modern was played by Doctor Who veteran actor David Collings, who had previously appeared in Revenge of the Cybermen and the Robots of Death. He would go on to play the Doctor himself in one of Big Finish's Doctor Who Unbound series in one of the most deeply disturbing plays in that entire range. 
He also reads the audiobook version of the story, so if you go and find the audiobook, you will be listening to David Collings. A couple other things real quick, and then we'll get to the discussion of it. If you're wondering who Keith Shand is... Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, this is one of the few Doctor Who books ever to have a dedication. This one is to Grim Wade's partner. Okay. Keith Shand was a literary editor. And obviously, Grimwade's partner. And if you go and you find the DVD of the Mythmakers series of interviews, the one with Peter Grimwade is shot in Keith Shan's house. And he apparently co-wrote, co-edited rather, a book of literary criticism called 19th Century Suspense from Poe to Conan Doyle in 1988. And sadly, Shan died only a year after Grimwade did. Hmm. So that's something to note. Another thing to note is that Ibbotson is played by Stephen Garlick, the entertainingly named Stephen Garlick, who provided the voice of Jen in Jim Henson's Dark Crystal. So if you've ever seen The Dark Crystal, that's Ibbotson. Okay. Yeah. And Modron is a portmanteau of more din which is Welsh for dead man. So basically the name of the story is Dead Man Undead. So that sounds like an anime title. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? Oh my God. And that probably would have been a very entertaining anime, but mm-hmm. it could have been worse though. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? I haven't done one of these in a while, so I'm willing to go in on this one, if no one minds. The Doctor's time-traveling machine is trapped in the flight path of an alien spacecraft in orbit around the Earth. To avoid the fatal impact of a head-on collision, the TARDIS resorts to the only escape possible and materializes on board the oncoming liner. This solves the immediate problem, but a new difficulty arises. The TARDIS cannot get off the ship until a radio signal transmitting from Earth has been disconnected. The Doctor sets off in a transmat capsule, having programmed the TARDIS to enable Tegan and Nyssa to follow him once he's dealt with the interference. Naturally enough, things don't go quite as planned. That's a great cover. Mm-hmm. I mean, the back cover, not the front cover, because the front cover's awful. But that back cover doesn't give anything away, which is just lovely. You rarely get that. Mm-hmm. Dalton! First impressions, when you got this <laughs> lovely looking book, what lovely, was lovely. your first impression? Yeah, that, that back cover gives you just enough to be interested. It doesn't give anything major away. You don't know anything that's going to happen after this. And so that is fantastic. The front cover, however, looks like someone just told Peter Davison that his cat died. <laughs> he just has <laughs> such a sour look on his face. He's just pouty. Yeah. yeah. Again, not super big fan of these photo covers. So I enjoyed having the drawing again last time with Snake Dance. Now we're back to a full photo and it's just kind of blah. Yeah. They could have given us something. And they don't have any handsome photos either. No, he always looks weird and dumpy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There, there are no photos of him looking, you know, dashing or happy or mischievous. Except when he has a gun, which is just inappropriate. Well, he didn't want artwork covers because he was vain. <laughs> he thought that he would look better with photos. And these were the photos that they chose. 
In fact, Jim pointed out that there's a really good photo from this very story that would have been perfect for the cover. And in fact, the virgin reprint of this particular novelization from the 90s has a lovely cover. So it doesn't make any sense for this to be just so bland and awful. Yeah, it doesn't work at all. But the back cover really got me. I was like, yeah, this sounds like it's going to go somewhere really cool. So, Mm -hmm. Okay. How about you, Allison? First impressions. Well, from the front cover, it looked like a corrections officer or perhaps a customs officer. I told him to put his hands on the table. (laughs) And then uh, I read the back cover and thought... Um, okay, that doesn't really tell me much about what's going on. But I, as I often do, started with the PDF and then I went to the audiobook. Ah, so you heard David Collins. Yes. So I wonder if this cover that I saw is the Virgin cover you're talking about. It's probably, I'm trying to remember, the audio version of this might actually have a new cover. However, what I'm going to treat you to is the summary that I read. Oh, okay. For the audiobook. Materializing to avoid a head-on collision in space, the TARDIS becomes trapped on board an eerily deserted alien spacecraft. The Doctor transmats to Earth to solve the problem, yet when the TARDIS follows on, Tika and, and Nyssa find that they have arrived five years too early. While the Doctor enjoys a reunion with Brigadier Lethbridge Seward in 1983, in 1977 his companions are confronted by a hideously deformed figure who claims to be the Doctor. Unsure whether or not this is their friend, Tegan and Nyssa must choose whether to answer his desperate pleas for help. Meanwhile, schoolboy Turlow has an encounter with a mysterious stranger who's determined to wreak revenge upon the Doctor. This is the Black Guardian, and Turlow is to do his bidding. So... <laughs> oh wow! Really, got got quite the cliff notes. <laughs> yeah, there. did not leave anything to chance there, did they? Mm-hmm. Well, and so the 1983 edition, you know, came out with this was a fresh story, but I think it's actually reasonable for modern readers to know a little bit more about what they're getting. Uh, and people might be, you know, very excited. Oh, I'm going to see the Brigadier. You wouldn't guess that from the original cover. But yes, it is the most unrestrained summary that I've ever read for one of these books. Yeah, it is quite insane. I'm looking right now at all of the different covers that have been done for DVD releases and for reprints. And yeah, they're all better than this. But the problem is they're all giving away the fact that the Brigadier's in it. This one does not have the Brigadier. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't, because I'm looking at it right now. In fact, oh, God, they're showing that Gallifreyan machine. In fact, I can't tell what it has to do with anything in the story, since I haven't seen it visually. It's the Gallifreyan regeneration machine, Mm. and they're all hooked up to it. Yeah, that's what that is. Good God, that's an ugly cover. Uh, The art gives nothing away. (laughs) Yeah. And the cover is a, a complete plot summary. Yeah, that's really sad. No, it wasn't. I was very excited. I like the Brigadier. Oh, okay. Well, no, I mean, it's sad that it gives so much away and that it, you know, you weren't surprised by, oh, by the Black Guardian coming back, too, because... I was not. No, I knew exactly who it was. Oh, you did? Yeah, because the, t- the book told me that this was the Black Guardian. <laughs> Quote, this is the Black Guardian, and Turlo is to do his bidding. Oh, and I'm sorry. And then for some reason, there are ellipses, even though that is a complete sentence. I thought you'd done the PDF before you got to that bit, but no, apparently not. I had started the PDF. Okay, got it. <laughs> oh, my. All right, so 
Here's the thing about this season, and this is something that Jim Sangster pointed out, which I did not know before, so thank you, Jim. I'm glad you told me this. I was always under the impression that since this was the 20th anniversary season, that it was a deliberate choice on John Nathan Turner's part to bring something old back for each episode. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> it was not planned this way. It just happened. How do you get this far into a season in preparation and not realize that, like, you're bringing all this stuff back, though? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. The next story doesn't actually do that. In fact, I watched it last night, and I can't think of anything specific unless we're <laughs> counting the Black Guardian twice or thrice, as it turns out. He'll be around for three stories. Well, not only is the Brigadier brought back, but we haven't seen a mention of the Marie Celeste with this doctor before. Oh, God. (laughs) I knew that was coming. Well, Grim Wade's original idea was to do a science fiction version of the Flying Dutchman. But yeah, anytime there's a ship with nobody on it, on Doctor Who, it's got to be the Marie Celeste. It's got to be the the Nina, the Pinta, or the Santa Maria. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you did a drinking game for Doctor Who tropes, this... We'd be dead. Yeah, this you would die of blood poisoning from this book alone. Oh, he also pointed out that every villain or a villainous character this season kind of crawls away and dies. They're tired. <laughs> like, okay. They've had a long day. Yeah, I guess so. The mutation condition's acting up. Yes, exactly. Some days don't you want to just crawl away and die quietly at the end of the day? Yeah, this being one of them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I feel (laughs) you. Where do we want to start with this? What did we like about this book? I enjoy seeing the Brigadier back. I know you said that Grimway didn't treat him with the same kind of feeling as everyone else at the school. But I thought that the Brigadier was a lot more gruff than I remember him being. Yes. Yeah. He still was pretty much an old curmudgeon, just like everyone else at the school seemed to be. <laughs> yeah, he really is. And here's the weird thing. Grimwade actually softens that a lot for the book. Really? Yes, because on screen, whenever you see the brigadier acting gruff, he's mm. seemingly gruff. Yeah. So when he's asking whether or not they flogged Ibbotson... It comes across as if he's being serious. And by the way, that is something that could have happened to Ibbotson because even though he talks about his wish for them to bring back capital punishment, they hadn't gotten rid of corporal punishment yet. Yeah. So it could have happened. But yeah, every time he's gruff on screen, you don't quite get the sense that the brigadier is not actually acting like that, whereas on the page... I thought he was being funny. I thought he was just joking. Yeah, and Grimwade is very good about saying uh, the Brigadier caught himself because he didn't really feel that way, or the Brigadier wasn't wanting to show how terrified he was, so he blustered through it. And it's like, that's a nice bit of characterization. Yeah, we get more kind of those internal moments where the external Brigadier is very hard and the internal Brigadier is very soft and thoughtful and like actually worried about the characters. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And about himself. There's mm-hmm. that scene where he blows up at the doctor when he thinks that the doctor is suggesting that he's mentally unfit. And it's like, 
now this is the way someone would actually act if they'd gone through this sort of trauma and had lost their memory seven years previously. Yeah. Especially somebody like the Brigadier who's all about control. So it seems like, if I understand this correctly, he remembers a lot about Unit, but he doesn't remember the Doctor in particular? Yeah. There are a lot of people he does remember, but then he... I thought the trigger was mentioning Joe Grant, right? Yes. That's what sort of brings his memories flooding back. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting that it's not just that he forgot the specific event of him biting the big one later on in the story. Right. But that he... Well, I guess he doesn't actually... That version of him does not die. But he forgets a specific person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everything associated with the Doctor, which is interesting given the fact that Unit was formed because of the Doctor and all <laughs> right. those interactions. Well, but not everything. I mean, he remembers Harry. He remembers Benton. I don't remember if Mike Yates is in there. There are people he remembers who are associated with the Doctor, just not yeah. the Doctor himself. And he remembers seeing Nissa and Tegan before who are associated with the Doctor, and we're talking about the Doctor. But only when he gets his memory back. So it seems like there's some mm. sort of associational amnesia caused by the... Linovich limitation effect and him shorting out the time differential. I can't believe I know those terms off the top of my head, but I do. And if you look at it a little too closely, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It seems like the Brigadier should have forgotten all of you, not just the Doctor. No, but I like that it was supposed to be a traumatic experience as opposed to something magical or sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, it is still sci-fi, but you're right. Well, but he wasn't, you know cursed by a demon or something or no you know subjected to some kind of scientific magic wand yeah because that would have been patently ridiculous obviously that kind of thing happens all the time around here though yeah true (laughs) that and it allows for this wonderful flashback sequence now on screen because john nathan turner is in love with these sorts of sequences by now he is remembering all of these previous events and these people by clips. (laughs) We're getting clips of them in sepia tones. And then he remembers. Whereas on the page, Grimway does this wonderful thing with it by putting in all these bits of dialogue. They're not actual bits of dialogue, but all of these references to previous events with all the different doctors and all the different events, and it actually works quite well. I'm going to be saying that a lot, by the way, because, spoiler alert, I actually like this book. I'm amazed at how much I like this book. Brigadier's handled really, really well in this, I think. Even though every once in a while he acts out a character, but even then on the page, it's generally given a good explanation as to why he's acting that way. Do we like him being in two time zones? That is not what a time zone is. What? What? I had a bit of a beef with that term. Yeah, calling it a time zone. They're seven years off, not seven hours. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Fine, fine, fine. No, but that's what they call it in the book. That's not you calling it that. That's what Grimway calls it. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Dalton. But it still doesn't make sense. It's still (laughs) calling it a time zone. It's like, no, it's not a time zone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Previous stories, I think, would have referred to it as a time band or something, but then it sounds like it's some sort of ska group. Or just simply saying two different years. Yeah, two different eras, two different 
Timelines? Timelines. Well, that's just it. It's not a different timeline. It's the same timeline. So yeah. we can't call it that. Mm-mm. So, yeah. I, I guess that's it. But anyway, back to the original question. <laughs> I liked it. And I, I also liked that since one of the Brigadier's bitchier moments was telling one of the kids that his body was disgusting... We were told that the old brigadier who does that is quite pudgy himself. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of sad. Yes. (laughs) And I love how we get that through Tegan's point of view, because she's really smitten with him when she first meets him in 77. Mm -hmm. And then when she meets him again in 1983, she thinks, damn, he's gone to seed. (laughs) Yeah. And ends up calling him a chauvinist. Yes. Yes thinks he's kind of charming and dashing and then after he starts talking to her the way he talked to joe who was a subordinate yeah she's had enough of him i thought that was actually a, a great natural dynamic that they develop between them at first there's a bit of a flirtation and then nobody talks to tegan that way and remains in her good graces <laughs> nobody puts tegan in the corner where she remarks at one point after, after he's barked an order at her and they say yeah, we're not in the army <laughs> right yeah, and Grimblade even makes that better. I mean, he still makes the Brigadier chauvinist, but he kind of points out in the prose that he actually is being a chauvinist. Well, he's always punished for it in some way. Yeah, it doesn't go well for him. And you notice that the 1983 version of him is slightly less so like that. I'm trying to remember the exact line, but he says something to Tegan and Nissa like, I've seen a lot. One of them responds, yeah, so have we. <laughs> we yeah. Or I've seen it all. Yeah, so have we also seen it all. Well, the um, regeneration. I know all about regeneration. I've seen it before. So have we, and he almost died. It's like, don't worry. Well, we'll take care of it. <laughs> and it doesn't work out that well, does it? But when you refer to him being more gruff, speaking of sexism is punished in this book, we're told that the, um, <laughs> it's actually called a hut that the brigadier is living in. Yeah. As yes. opposed to, you know, I would think, you know, a cottage or something like that. Hut, a love so. shack. <laughs> it is an unloving shack. <laughs> but uh, we have a line here about how, well, have actually a very evocative description of how gross it is. And disorderly, and that, what's the line here? It was the usual self-imposed squalor of a bachelor brought up to believe that domesticity can only be provided by a servile member of the opposite sex. The very <laughs> untypical of Lethbridge Stewart. Yes. Which yes. I actually took as a categorization of everything that he does that's different and worse than usual. That there's yes. something off about him. Yes. And I took the gruffness to be like that, to, to be uncharacteristic as well. Because... One of the things that I liked about the character previously is that he's actually often quite thoughtful Mm -hmm. and, you know, seems to maybe have a gruff exterior for reasons of convention in the situation, but is actually very insightful about human nature and often quite compassionate. Mm -hmm. And it's not usual for him to live in a pigsty. And it's not usual for him to be gratuitously unkind to students no exactly right so i I guess i actually liked the characterization because i thought it all indicated that there was something very very off and we were going to find out what it was yeah Mm -hmm. and we don't get a lot of that on screen it's definitely interwoven 
into the prose in a way that doesn't quite come across on screen as much. In fact, that whole business of the 1983 hut being more disorderly than the 1977 one, they don't do it. And you can understand the reason why that would be insanely difficult to dress the set. I mean, actually, it wouldn't be insanely difficult to dress the set, but they don't even bother with it. To throw laundry around? Not really. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be probably the only thing that they could do, but they don't do it. Grimway does, and he specifically points that out and has the doctor not only think about it but think very deeply about it and say to himself something's not right here he doesn't know who i am and this is not the way he lives and he doesn't act this way it's just really well done characterization yeah what about the other characters because we do have to talk about turlow because turlow's new he's the new companion turdlow Oh, God, really? He's such a brat. Oh, really? You don't like that, huh? (laughs) Uh, I mean... He is, though. It's interesting to have that type of character when, like you pointed out, like, Adric initially was supposed to be this type of character. And I think that it's interesting to see that kind of rub you the wrong way, but still be paired with the Doctor. Because the Doctor still handles him and has him do things that he needs him to do. He doesn't let him be a little brat. Yeah. But that whole beginning sequence with Ibbotson stealing the car, oh my God. It's like, you little horrible person. (laughs) I do not like you. Well, and he's gratuitously cruel to a kid who's in a socially lesser position. Yeah. But he pays for it as well. He he is punished for that too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Everyone who's mean to Ibbotson is punished for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then also with Turlow, You know, there's all these bits where we're kind of given breadcrumbs that make us understand that he's not actually from Earth. Right. Which at first I thought I was misreading or confusing myself. But the more I read the book, I realized, oh, no, this is real. This is here. He is not from Earth. (laughs) Oh, I didn't I didn't pick up on that. You're way out of me. Yeah, it's it's very subtly done. It's fantastic. Well, I thought they were just setting up no one's going to miss him or look for him when he's gone. No. For instance, there's a very specific spot I'm thinking about. When the TARDIS doesn't show up and the Doctor's just staring at where it should have been, and Turlow pops out this bit of technobabble about Mm -hmm. why it didn't show up. And he should not know that. And the Doctor, in fact, the Doctor doesn't even note it. He says something more along the lines of, Rather than pointing out that an English schoolboy should not know about such things, he simply yes. replied. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was he was being informed by the Guardian. No, 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 no. Because then the Doctor would know something's up as far as that goes. The Doctor still knows something's up. He gives him that crystal back, for instance. It's like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah, but I thought that the explanation to us, the reader, is that the reason Turlow knows how to do these things is because the Guardian is sort of coaching it. Nope. Not all of it. Not all of it. He is going to coach him on a couple things later, of course. But no, Turlow has some extremely native experience of advanced technology because he's from a culture that has it. For instance, when he goes into the TARDIS, he immediately recognizes it as being a time machine. Mm Mm-hmm. And he thinks, oh, I could adapt this and I could get off Earth. 
It's like, oh. Oh, I had forgotten about that. Yeah, probably, I'm not sure it would have come across an audio quite so much, but on the printed page, it's kind of hard to miss it. It's there, and it's it's very subtle, but it's there, and it's through the whole book. There's just little bits and pieces, and even the description of Turlow, it says, Thin as a willow, his auburn hair, blue eyes, and sharp bone face, investing him with an unworldly pre-Raphaelite appearance. So that usage of unworldly, at first you're like, eh, he just, he looks special. But then as you're reading, you're like, oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> Grimmite literally told us he is not of this world. Mm-hmm. And it's great casting to have gotten Mark Strickson for that, because Mark Strickson as Turlow looks otherworldly. Mm. Good God, does he ever look otherworldly. He sometimes also sounds otherworldly because he... Mark Strickson is not known for subtle acting. (laughs) As you can imagine. It's definitely that sort of character, but you're right. In fact, this is giving something away, but not much. We will not know for sure where Turlow is from until his final story, mm. which okay. also happens to be written by Grim Wade. Mm. I like the parallelism of the opening sequences that Turlow is being a jackass, but he's pulling a prank by stealing the car. He's not trying to do something that turns out to be as dangerous as it is. He's just not paying attention and he gets into a head-on collision. It's not that different from the opening sequence with the TARDIS going into this near collision with the, the ship mm-hmm. in the elliptical orbit as well. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. I, I should have picked up on that as well. When Turlow is having his near-death experience where he encounters the Guardian, the thing I did not get is he thinks about how he's fine with dying. That wouldn't be much of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then he has this sort of half-remembered deal he makes with the Guardian that I did not understand. I went over a couple of times because I thought, I thought he was fine with dying. Mm-hmm. How is the Guardian able to cut this deal to help him survive if he doesn't care whether or not he survives? And then later he's talking about using the ship to get home. So is it implied that that's the deal? Yeah, I think it's that Turlow, initially when he thinks he has died, thinks, if nothing else, at least I'm not on Earth anymore. Mm-hmm. But then when the Black Guardian makes him this offer, and it sounds like a very reasonable offer if you don't know it's the Black Guardian making the offer, that you need to help me. I need to destroy the most evil being in the universe. His name is the Doctor. If you help me, I will get you back home. And Turlow says, yeah, absolutely. So is Turlow going to turn out to actually be young, a teenager? Is he going to be an older being in a younger body? He is said to be seven. Well, no, that's not quite true. I guess I'm asking for spoilers. Yes, and I'm trying. (laughs) And I'm trying to give. You can tell me that I. It's not yet. (laughs) It's not yet my time. Well, well, I'm trying to give them to you. Just give me a moment. Yes, uh, (laughs) it was born in 1962. No, that's wrong. How old did I say Strixon was? Was it 59 or 62? I think it was 62. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. Anyway, the actor is older than the character. No, I mean, the does the character turn out to actually match the... I, is this his actual body? I'm getting there. Yes, okay. <laughs> it is his actual body. He is actually young. Whether or not he's 17 years old, as he would likely be, according to Jim's notes, if he were actually an English schoolboy. And we're still at the school during the summertime because there's very specific circumstances involved there that are just so arcane, I won't go into them. But 
instead of having a summer vacation, he is still at the school. Probably because he has no other place to go. Because, yeah, he has to stay on Earth. But the character is never really said to be any older than what he appears to be. Okay, so he's not like the Doctor, then. Yeah. No. He's not like the Doctor. In fact, in his last story, he is referred to... I, I won't say what he's referred to as, but the title Junior is attached to it. So that would imply that he is a juvenile version of this particular thing that he is. Mm. Okay. So yeah, he just happens to be much more intelligent than most humans are, because technology and all. But yeah. Okay, so more like Adric, like an actual boy genius, sort of. Teen from somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And... I kind of agree with Jim on this one because he put this in his notes. He says that it's just so telling that whenever you have an alien character like Nyssa or Adric or Turlow, they always know more than the Earthbound character does. So Tegan always knows less than they do. But somehow, because of plot armor, they know exactly what they need to know just to make her look dumb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I can see that. I'm not sure it destroys the story for me. No, no. No. Which I guess means we need to talk about this whole thing with the Black Guardian, because this is the first of three stories. There's a Black Guardian trilogy in this season. So the Black Guardian is gunning for the Doctor, and he's using Turlow as his gun. Oh, that fell apart quickly. What do we think of that? I don't think it works. Okay, why not? I think that this story already is super complicated, dealing with two different years, two different versions of the Brigadier. The whole plot with the with Maltron and with the Red Ship in space is interesting enough without the further layer of the Black Guardian having maybe made this all happen, bringing the Doctor into it. That seems so extraneous to me and so unnecessary. The same problem that I feel like I had with Snake Dance, where it feels like they brought back the Mara just to bring back the Mara. This feels like it's bringing back the Black Guardian just to bring back the Black Guardian. The story works without that. Hmm. I don't mind the sequences with Turlo and the Black Guardian. It's actually pretty interesting having him kind of pulled out of his body and get to this other state of like thinking and being kind of astral plane. It's interesting, but it's not necessary. It doesn't really have anything to do with much of the rest of the story to me. Hmm. I loved it on the other hand. Okay. I actually like the idea that there is a companion who is some sort of double agent, not exactly against his will at first, but he quickly learns that, you know, he actually likes a doctor, trusts the doctor, doesn't want to kill the doctor. Mm-hmm. And I like that that's revealed in the first story we see him in. Yeah. As opposed to him just having this big revelation in his last story that he was in some way sort of possessed the entire time and planning to kill the doctor, but really didn't want to Mm -hmm. as a sort of cheap last minute reveal. I like that we know the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting dynamic that we haven't seen before with a companion. That is true. I'm kind of torn on both sides. On the one hand, I like having that dynamic of having a companion who's actively out to kill the doctor and is slowly won over by him. While on the other hand, I 
don't think we necessarily needed the Black Guardian to achieve that. No. But it has to be not his idea. Someone has to send him. And it has to be someone who, for some reason, just doesn't do the job themselves. Possibly. It's got to be some kind of blackmail or hostage situation or something. Mm -hmm. Because if he's just a mercenary, then he's just bad. Well, I think you're right. And Grimway does kind of cover his tracks there by having the doctor think to himself, this is a huge amount of coincidence. Something is causing this to happen. Something outside of the norm. And for him to just land there and run into Turlow, and Turlow thinks, oh, I'll kill this guy and take his TARDIS without the Black Guardian there, that would be a little more difficult to swallow, maybe? But we've had lots of stories where the Doctor just so happens to run into someone that's out to get him, you know? <laughs> that's happened through the like the whole series, where it's just like, oh, you just so happen to be on this planet at this time when this thing is happening that I'm going to get you for. Like, it could very could have easily been, you know, Turlow is just... <laughs> around that obelisk he sees the the transmat he's just a curious little shit from another planet he's like <laughs> okay it doesn't necessarily have to have the black guardian there he could have been brought into the story without the black guardian at all he could have just as easily just happened upon this thing that the doctor was already interacting with because they got caught up with the red ship and being stuck in its flight path like <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's just like, right. it works because we want it to work, but it's not necessary to actually make the story interesting mm -hmm. or to introduce Turlo as a character. Okay. I, I see where you're getting at. Yeah. But it's the saying about if you meet one jerk during the day, you met a jerk that day. But if you meet five or six different jerks, you're the jerk. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Look, the doctor is running to yet another individual who has aught against him yeah. and wants to kill him. <laughs> Maybe he's the common factor. <laughs> and I love your characterization of Turlo's uh, shit from another planet. It's like, yeah. to show this fall on UPN. <laughs> well, but so was Adric, but I actually found Turlo a little more interesting. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that is not only a testament to Mark Strickson, but also a testament to JNT looking at the character brief and saying, we need to kind of keep this character pure in the way that we didn't keep Adric pure. Yeah, we need to stick to the characterization that we initially come up with and make sure that there's consistency there. Yes. And it is incredibly helpful to have Mark Strickson have genuine chemistry with Peter Davison. They are just wonderful on screen together. You can absolutely believe that the doctor's like, oh, you're odd. <laughs> I like you. I'm going to take you on board. Yeah. One of the things I liked about how they wrote Adric off is indicated that he actually doesn't like the new doctor and doesn't have that sort of chemistry with him. Mm -hmm. True. There is that. And I know, Dalton, I, I hear you suffering over there because... Adric. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> I will say, though, Grimway does something here in the book that he wanted to do in the scripts, but it somehow got chopped out. And it ends up being something that Tegan thinks about, because mm -hmm. Tegan's trying to figure out, why is the Doctor so accepting of this boy's outrageous story? Yes. Mm -hmm. And she says, could it be that he actually misses Adric so much that he's willing to just kind of transfer his attention to this new guy? I thought Egan was terrific in this story. Oh, God, she is. She's being abrasive, but not just to be difficult. She's usually right. 
Yeah. And people dismiss her so easily. She's not as educated as Nyssa. She's not as sort of courtly and nice yeah. and soft-spoken as Nyssa can be. She's not as experienced as a doctor. She's not as experienced as a brigadier. But she is right, if not every time, almost every time. Yes. And by contrast, Nyssa isn't. <laughs> yeah. But also, Nyssa is not stupid. She's just on the wrong side of all the guesses. And Tegan's on the right side. And I thought that worked pretty well. Yeah. I actually thought it was delightful to have Tegan and the Brigadier have this sort of mild chemistry and sort of flirtation. And that as soon as he starts talking to her like a subordinate, she'll have none of it. The new boy it seems like as much of a jerk as the last one. She will have none of that as well. <laughs> She's not trusting of the individual who says that he is the doctor, but she also appreciates that everyone wants to help him, but she doesn't trust him any further than she can throw him. Mm-hmm. I thought it was actually a great story for Tegan, as we read it here. Yeah. I don't know if it's the same on the screen. Well, it actually is, because you realize that Tegan is the one who is unsure from the start, and she continues to be unsure. And sure enough, she's right. Modern is not the doctor. Well, I feel like often she's written as just squawking like a bird so that the writer can portray her as obnoxious and just as sort of comedic relief. Mm-hmm. But this actually made a lot more sense as a personality. Yeah. She still has her moments. I mean, when the doctor trots out his bit of nonsense about, you know, if a thousand monkeys were given typewriters, they'd eventually produce the works of Shakespeare. And she says, what ridiculous garbage. Why are you talking about this? Mm-hmm. Statistically speaking, if you go typewriters to a tree full of monkeys, it eventually produce the works of William Shakespeare. Doctor! Now, you and I know that at the end of the millennium, they'd still be tapping out gibberish. And you'd be tapping it out right alongside them. I only asked you a simple question. But she calls him on his bullshit because the fifth doctor sometimes can go up his own spout very easily. But remember, I always like it when the companions are smart. Yes, and she's being very smart. Or at least try to be. <laughs> And she is. Well, especially since she's the one who, as soon as the Brigadier says it's the Queen's Jubilee, she thinks, oh no. (laughs) And she also realizes, oh God, uh, having two Brigadiers there is a bad thing, even though the Doctor, (laughs) as soon as he shows up, he yells at her for being stupid. It's like, it wasn't me being stupid. You brought him too. Yep. How was I supposed to know? Yes, exactly. (laughs) I love how that works out. Yeah, the dynamics there are just great. What about Modron and his group? The audiobook, the Modron voice was terrific, and now I know why. Yeah, that's him. David Collings does a remarkable job with a character that is kind of hard to get a hold on. Because Grimwade's made him a little more sympathetic on the page than he is on screen. He wasn't that sympathetic on the page. Well, (laughs) he's still willing to call Tegan a prattling earth child or whatever, but take it from me, when you're in that much pain and somebody in their 20s says something really stupid, it's very difficult for you not to say something biting in return. Just take it from my everyday experiences. But in this case, yeah, he's a little more sympathetic than he is on screen. And he even has his moments of being actually concerned. Like when he realizes there are two brigadiers. And he says, oh, this is dangerous for you. We need to get you in the transmat and out of here. 
And yet he puts Tegan and Nyssa in. Well, that's just it. He doesn't deliberately put them in danger, does he? He just knows that they are. So it's kind of six of one, half dozen of another, which kind of gets me into one of the few things that I dislike about the story and about this book. And that's the character it's named after. (laughs) So before I launch into my stuff, I want to ask you, what did you think of modern and this whole business of this group of scientists who tried to somehow regenerate themselves and ended up in an endless loop of pain and suffering. I was getting Event Horizon vibes from it of just like Hmm. super gruesome, just like you did this to yourself kind of deal. (laughs) It's not and it's not exactly what's going on with Event Horizon, but just kind of yeah ghost ship in space spooky lots of really oozing and pussing and sticky and wet descriptions of them yes getting lots of the thing vibes of them just being contorted and full of wounds and just malformed and just yeah. ugh. they sound disgusting i would totally run away from them if i saw them for real <laughs> i still do not understand how anyone would confuse that for the doctor yeah but that's my biggest problem with it it's yeah. easier to do it on the page because the way modern is described on the page sounds possibly like the doctor could regenerate into something like that but when you see him on screen with his brain literally coming out of his skull and pulsing. Yeah. It's just like, oh, But he's not just a different species rather than the doctor appearing yeah. to be a human, but he's terribly ill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're, they're kind of described as reptilian yeah. in the book. Yeah. And <laughs> they're not that on screen. Yeah, because okay. I thought actually the, the book version made sense. Like, he doesn't have to look like a human. He could yeah. look like some other species. How do you know? Yeah. You don't know. I'm totally him. Mm-hmm. Kind of made sense as something that they would be willing to entertain as a concept, but is very suspicious. Yes. And yeah. it's actually something that the Doctor will, in a later story, say is indeed possible. In the 1996 TV movie, his companion for that movie, Grace, actually asks him, you look human, can you regenerate into other species? And he says, yes, occasionally, but... And it's like, really? Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, it is possible. But we do need to crack apart the egg that is what makes a Time Lord a Time Lord. And this is something that really drives me nuts about this story. And Grimway doesn't quite get rid of it, because he still makes reference to it. This idea that the only thing that makes a Time Lord a Time Lord is their ability to regenerate, which we've talked about previously, I think. That bothers me. (laughs) Because (laughs) the episode three cliffhanger is the Doctor saying, if I do what they ask, I won't be a Time Lord anymore. And it's like, no, no, no. Grimwave at least changes that to say they'll destroy my regenerative abilities and I won't be able to regenerate, which is literally what will happen. It was a surprise to me several stories ago when we found out that not all Gallifreyans are Time Lords. And I have ever since felt I don't actually truly understand what a Time Lord is, so I'll accept whatever a particular story tells me. But I never really understood the mechanics 
of how he was supposed to give them his next eight regenerations, thereby actually allowing them to die. But I didn't care enough to go back. Yeah, it's implied that he's going to be giving away his lives. But to kill them rather than to save them was the part I didn't entirely get. But eh, fair enough. It'll stabilize them to the point that they can die. Something like that. And somehow it's going to save Tegan and Nissa too. I don't get it either. That's the one part of the story that kind of falls apart. That and the whole business of how did they get this thing to begin with? Are they themselves Gallifreyans? It could be, but it sounds like they're a different species than the Gallifreyans, even though they obviously stole this machine from Gallifrey in order specifically to do this thing. I mean, I actually maybe have an opposite position from Dalton on this about which was the superfluous story. I thought the part about the Black Guardian selecting an agent to act as an assassin on his behalf was more interesting than the main story. Oh. I thought setting up that new premise with a new companion was more engaging than Modron and his buddies. Yeah. It's a trope that's been done a lot. I mean, if you try to raise the dead in a fantasy or a sci-fi, it's like the Jim Gaffigan hot pocket routine. You don't say an hour <laughs> later, wow, I'm really glad I ate that. No one ever raises the dead and says, wow, I'm really glad I did that. It worked out just as I had hoped, and now I'm happy again. No one in a sci-fi or a fantasy ever says, you know, I think I'm going to figure out a way to live forever. And that just works out really well for them. It just, it's always horrific. Yeah. It's always tremendous suffering and wishing for death. And it's a legitimate theme, but it's one we've seen before. And I didn't think this story brought anything new to it. And it's one we'll see again this season. (laughs) We will see it at the very end of the season. And Dalton already knows the story that I'm referring to. And I thought the thing that could be interesting to explore was that they made themselves immortal, or they're trying to undo that, whereas the Time Lords are not immortal. They just have a much longer life because of their regenerations. Yes. Which is different from being immortal, even if this sort of state of constant sort of semi-degeneration but not dying weren't part of it. I didn't feel like they explored that theme at all. The difference between being immortal versus having very long life. They're going to get into it, briefly at least, by the end of the season. Because this whole business of the Doctor being absolutely terrified to lose his regenerations is fine, except for the fact that it will be established this season that the Time Lords can give someone a new regenerative cycle. So even if the Doctor does lose his regenerations to these numbnuts... He could get another regenerative cycle just by going back to Gallifrey. Because they're going to offer one to another character later this season. That later story makes this whole sacrifice business a bit meaningless. And by the way, he doesn't do the sacrifice anyway because the Brigadier does his wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing, and boom, that takes care of him. Mm. Sounds like something else the writers should have been in contact with each other about, just like bringing back other things from previous seasons. <laughs> I would think so, but as we already said, the season was not pre-planned in any good way. There's also the more recent revelation that the Doctor alone may have infinite regenerations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, the Fifth Doctor would never have known this, but yeah, if he gave away eight of them, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. 
But, you know, we had to wait 40 years to learn that, so it's okay. <laughs> True. And Russell T. Davis may take that away, and who knows what'll happen. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll see, all right. Good lord. I thought the interesting parts of the story were the new companion and having a different premise than usual for a companion that could quickly become a cliche, but we haven't seen it before in, in Doctor Who. And I thought that arriving in two different time periods in 1977-1983 was interesting and I thought bringing back the brigadier the way they did and having him have almost two different personalities Mm -hmm. sort of before and after the event that happened at the end and sacrificing himself in a way that saves the day because of the paradox Mm -hmm. instead of by avoiding the paradox yeah and sort of and redeems the the sort of shall we say less lovable <laughs> version that we have in 1983. I thought that all works, and that will kind of stick to the ribs for me later. And actually, there's a lot about this book I really loved. Yeah, the A story will not remember tomorrow. It's not terrible. It's just there's nothing particularly new or interesting about it, or insightful. Yeah, and it also falls apart if you look at it a little too closely, which I'm not really willing to do because I actually like this story. I like this book rather without doing that pulling apart. I know that's hard to believe, but it is true. Mm-hmm. It gives Tegan and the Brigadier and the Doctor something to run around and work on and a problem to fix. Mm-hmm. And Nissa some, although I felt like she was barely present in the story. Yeah. It just gives them something to do as they bounce off of each other in more interesting ways mm-hmm. and deal with the two time periods in more interesting ways. The actual elliptical ship and modern and company is just kind of a snooze fest. And I love the interactions between the fifth doctor and the brigadier, especially that bit where the doctor's trying to figure out how he's going to get in touch with the TARDIS. And if only I had a homing device and the brigadier just offhandedly says, Oh, I have one. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's in the and bottom the, of this chest. Yes, and the doctor's getting more and more agitated, saying, "Where is it?" <laughs> it's just lovely. There's so many good things about this book. I have to say that it offsets some of the stuff that doesn't hit quite as well, such as the modern plot. Obviously, even the ending. We actually get a nicely well-rounded ending with the brigadier finally back and a whole man at the end of it and Turlo coming aboard to the dislike of Tegan and Nyssa. <laughs> so yeah. I have a question. Yes. The Brigadier's car ah. is not Bessie. It is correct? not. I expected it was going to be and then it wasn't. <laughs> it okay. is not, but it seems to be of the same vintage. Okay, because I thought that's totally where we were going with that. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. And it never resolved, so I was like, maybe, yeah, it's just, it's not. No, okay. but it's one of those subtle hints that the Brigadier may be remembering more about the Doctor than he realizes if he's mm-hmm. wanting a car like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh. <laughs> so, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's go. Okay. Yeah, I think so. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.48. 
so it's not much more than the last book. Really? Yeah. It's like seven points above the previous one. Almost people are wrong. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. Michael in our Goodreads group gives it three stars and says, I'm kind of disappointed a lot of the Peter Davison era got lackluster covers. Alas, Modern Undead is no exception. Peter Grimway adapts a script for this four-part story from season 20 without much in the way of extra flourishes, asides, or exploring side tangents. I kind of think he does, actually. The story itself is a good one. So the novel has that going for it. I listened to the audio version a few years ago when it hit digital download and found it quite enjoyable. See, there you go. As with many of the Davison era stories, I found myself wishing the mandate to not stray too far from what we got on screen wasn't in place. Yeah, that's something that John Nathan Turner was very strict about, not letting his writers go too far off script. Actor David Collings, who plays Modern, delivers a solid performance for the target audio version of this one, as I'm sure Allison can attest as well. Also in our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and says, When it was decided that because William Russell wasn't available to play Ian Chesterton, the guest star would be Nicholas Courtney playing the Brigadier, self-promoting Doctor Who consultant Ian Levine told the production crew that setting part of the story in 1977 would throw all the dates of unit stories out. They didn't listen to him, but for once, the little gobshite was right, and fans, <laughs> and sometimes writers, have tried to reconcile this controversy. That problem aside, I quite enjoyed this book. It wasn't perfect. Modern's reptilian appearance in the book wasn't, in my opinion, as effective as his disrupted human appearance on screen. There were also occasional malapropisms, such as plaintiff instead of plaintive, not only the wrong word, but wrongly spelt, too. <laughs> the story on screen was largely about reminiscence, with the return of both the Brigadier and the Black Guardian, and the book continues this theme. When the Brigadier climbs the hill to the obelisk, we are told he was reasoning like a grampus, a phrase I think that was used by the Fourth Doctor to describe the sound of the TARDIS engines. Yes, that line comes from Logopolis, which Grimway directed. <laughs> so, yeah, Grimway does that. He uh, also made reference to Adric in the story, too. So that tells you he's aware of how these stories interconnect. And finally, David Layton also gives it three stars and says, This novelization of a Doctor Who episode was written by the scriptwriter. Yes, it was. <laughs> this makes a bit of a difference. Either because it allows him to get some details into the story that did not make it to the televised version, or because it allows him to rethink some details. Either way, the novel turns out to be a little better than the serial by filling in some gaps. Chief among these is the difference between The Brigadier in 1977 and The Brigadier in 1983. In the novel, Grim Wade makes clear that the breakdown event had a much greater effect on The Brigadier than the TV serials showed. The story itself is one of the more tightly plotted, as time paradox stories need to be. Grimwade, however, makes a few narrative errors, such as using the little did he know that narrative intrusion several times. I'm also not so fond of stories in which everyone knows what a Time Lord is. That makes the Doctor Who universe too small. <laughs> yeah. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I think I'm going to agree with close to what the Goodreads score is. I would give this a 3.5. I think the story is pretty interesting throughout. I like a lot of the character moments. It's good to see the Brigadier back. Turlo, as much of a turd as he is, is <laughs> going to be a fun character, I can tell already. 
or at least I hope he continues to be a fun character. I guess we'll see. Again, like we've already said, Tegan's fantastic. Nyssa fades into the background, which we have said over and over and over again through many iterations of stories. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. 3.5. Okay. And Allison? At first, I thought it was pretty dull. There seemed to be an awful lot of sprinting across the hills (laughs) with Evanson yelling. After Turlo just reminded me of Hedgehog in the Fog. Yojik! <laughs> to the point where I may accidentally call Turlo Yojik in the future. Okay. <laughs> and I think the line that probably won me over was Nissa and uh, Tegan and the Doctor looking at this weirdly luxuriant, weirdly deserted ship. And Nissa says everything on the ship's designed for entertainment or pleasure. Pleasure. And that there is a hint of Calvinistic disapproval in her voice. And I was so amused at the idea of Calvinism on Trocken. I'm like, okay, that was pretty funny. (laughs) I feel like it's the story that I found most engaging since Castrovelva. Really? I don't know if that was just, if I was in the mood for it. It was actually a very good reading. But it wasn't, you know, full of bells and whistles and sound effects and that sort of thing either. It was, it was very straightforward. The one line that I might start using as my email signature is, I think this is from the Brigadier, I just feel that we're on the verge of something really appalling. <laughs> <laughs> so, I enjoyed the characterizations. I like the new premise, which for me is a big deal because I was bored immediately with the very first story where we were told there will be various color-coded guardians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like some of the stories themselves, but I was already weary of this being a long, overarching, connecting story. Whereas this time, I'm actually interested. So I'm going to go 3.25. Hey. My God. Feeling generous. Talk about Calvinism. (laughs) Well, in space, yes. Calvinism in space, that's engaging. (laughs) All right. And I'm probably going to surprise everybody by giving this a 3.75. I did think very strongly about giving it a 4. And in fact, I could possibly be talked into a 4 on this one. Simply because if you strip away some of the problems with the main modern plot and you look solely at the stuff that Grimwade is doing with the Doctor and the Brigadier and the Brigadier and Tegan and even some of Modern's characterization and definitely some of Turlow's characterization, this is a solid book. And it's hard for me to believe that it's written by the same person that wrote Time Flight. Right. Because Time Flight was terrible. (laughs) Yeah, it was not a good TV story, and it was an even worse book. And this one does everything right that that one did wrong. Because it still brings in Time Lords. It still brings in temporal shenanigans. It still brings in the sort of things that that story did. In fact, he has Tegan think of Captain Stapley at one point in the story so he wants to remind us that he wrote time flight i don't know why anyone in their right mind would ever want to do that but he does and it's fine because this feels like a very personal book for grim wade because why would he dedicate it to his partner otherwise it really does strike me as probably the strongest that we've had from this season so far. And I know people have said that I need to do redemptive readings, and I find myself appreciating the story a lot more having read the book now. 
which is very rare. So I think I may just say four. I honestly may just say four. I usually want to give a book a higher rating if it somehow goes above and beyond the televised story. This one just about doesn't. So yeah, four stars. For what you've described, it sounds like it's markedly better than on screen. I mean, I don't want to insult something I haven't seen, but... The on-screen story has its problems. Chief among them being, there's no way in hell anyone could mistake Modern for originated version of the Doctor. <laughs> it just comes down to that. Well, I think you and JG said quite emphatically that you thought that regeneration trauma had been done to death and you were tired of it. Yeah. And we found someone who was not at all tired of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I could see in this era it being, you know, possible regeneration trauma because... In Castrovolve, the doctor was... Well, but he was pretty. I was going to say he was a vegetable, but he was a pretty vegetable. You're right. Yeah. Well, in this case, it is a story about regenerative trauma, but it's about regenerative trauma that doesn't have to do with Time Lords specifically. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, which is kind of why the main reason this book gets knocked back a few points for me is... I'd like to know more about Modern. I'd like to know more about that group of scientists, how they stole that machine, why they stole that machine, who their people are, why their people put them in exile on this ship that on screen has video games in it. (laughs) It's the cutest thing. Whereas I'm fine not knowing any of that. You can play Pong for eternity. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's opulent and it's pretty and it happens to have a game console in the middle of it. (laughs) So yeah, four stars. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss the novelization of Terminus. And that's all I'm going to say about that for now. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Feel free to join us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target the Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I get a good show. Not knowing what it was. And they'll continue singing it I can't believe you guys. This is the song that... Charlie Horse! No, no, stop, stop, stop. Charlie, stop. I want you to go away. Go away. And don't slam the... Door. Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.